Welcome to the Vitality Coach Podcast with the Mojo Maker and host Nikki Fogden Moore, the Vitality Expert, dedicated to helping you be the CEO of your business and your life with special industry and life-leading guests, top tips on how you can create that magical blend of healthy, wealthy, and wise for CEOs, entrepreneurs, founders, and people who do things with life. Hi guys, welcome back to the Mojo Maker podcast and show. I'm your host, Nikki Fogdemore, and as always, I like to bring you extraordinary guests who are redefining what we would usually do in business and in life and giving a fresh perspective throughout their own experience and their vision and purpose and driving this new collective energy forward. So if you haven't already liked and subscribed, please do so on iTunes, Spotify, etc. And also come hang out on YouTube, Vitality Coach TV. You can hit the notification bell and you can see the full video on episodes as well as the audio there. If you want to as well, loop back at the end of this episode, I will be putting show notes and various links. So don't be afraid you're going to miss out on the gold in this episode. And I'm going to introduce you to my fabulous guest in a second. So last thing, don't forget, like, subscribe. And at the end of this, we'd love to hear your comments and thoughts and questions. So let me welcome today's guest on smart, sustainable investing. I have Ben Griffith, who's the director of Viewpoint Private. Ben is just a magical human. Not only has he had years in the financial industry, but he's decided to do something a little bit different that combines not only his purpose and passion around financial planning for high net wealth individuals, but really the magic behind a value in doing that. Specialist in high net wealth planning. He has Viewpoint Private for that, but also he's an investment consultant with Seneca and has a formerly being with UBS as well as Crestone Investment Managers. So Ben's Vice President of ECM, which is Loftus Lane Capital, and um, he's doing a lot of things behind the scenes in a group of people that are trying to generate well-informed decision-making around what to do with money. I will let Ben explain a little bit how he got into this because I think that's a fantastic story in its own, but I'll set the scene by saying not only is he an entrepreneur but he's a fantastic opportunist, a family man, and someone that has deep set values to make sure that everything he does is grounded, not only in information, but in good future sustainability. He wants to cultivate meaningful relationships, not only through people, but the businesses he works with. So there's great alignment in what we talk about for the future of leadership by practicing what you preach. So without further ado, Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nikki, and welcome guests. Uh, quite the mouthful there. <laughs> so but there's a bit to discuss, I suspect, today, but uh, no, very happy to be on the show. Yeah, and I think what we're going to talk about today is the business of building your wealth, right? So not, and not only is it not too late to start, but actually how to step up and manage your money with a fresh perspective. And we made a few notes. The core questions you should always ask when you're investing, what really is high net wealth these days? You know, what is, what is that figure or what does that really mean? And relationships matter. Your financial planner and your money person is a part of the family. So trusting their advice and having that great transparent relationship. And the last thing we will always do on the show is three immediate things you can do as soon as you finish listening to this episode. Um, so lots of tangible things we'll put there, Ben. But just to kind of involve the, the viewers and the listeners into your story, it's not by accident that you and I are talking today. So give us a bit of an elevator moment about how you ended up here 
as the specialist in high net wealth financial planning? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. I mean, um, my, I come from the background, small country town. My parents weren't wealthy in any way. Uh, but what they did have, uh, they had their own business. So uh, that business was a, a milk distribution business. So at the age of, uh, of 13, I had a, a, an interest in business already. Um, not sure whether that was just following my dad around delivering milk or, or where that came from, but it was ingrained in me. And the one thing that they did for me that, that really set me on this uh, path was to involve me in, in some key decisions. So albeit I wasn't actually the one making the decisions, but I was sitting at the kitchen table uh, when interest rates were sort of late teens, 15, 16, 17%. I think they may have even touched 18 at one point for my parents at least. And they had quite a bit of money out the door on, on land. So that, that put tremendous strain on the business. And, you know, just seeing that the pressures that came through, not only financially, but then the pressures on the family and some of the decisions that had to be made around that. I remember at the time, this little town I grew up, you know, you, there wasn't much in the way of financial resource, i.e. financial planning specialists. So the one guy that they found locally to, to come in and help them really had only just got his certification. And um, even to a 13-year-old, it was pretty obvious that... Um, there wasn't a lot of sophistication there and I was quite disappointed in what um, was being said at the time and I, I, I made it pretty clear to my folks when, uh, when that guy left our, our house that I didn't like the way he was, uh, he was talking and what was coming, coming out. At the time I was studying business at, at uh, probably year seven or eight business and, and even I thought I knew a bit more. So um, that lit a fire in me and I thought, look, this is an area that... Um, you know, my, my parents are, you know, they own a business and they're struggling with this. There's got to be a lot of others out there. And this is an area that I think I'm, I could be pretty passionate about and, and help others. So uh, the foundations of what I do is, is helping others. And I'm really interested in business. And when you work in this, uh, this area, you actually, you get the opportunity to work with a wide array of people. And uh, more often than not, they're people that have made money and they're successful. So success comes in many different forms but um money is often attributed to success you could argue whether it should or shouldn't be but um more often than not it is so you know you, you do you, you get the real opportunity to work with all these different types of families and entities and, and find out what makes them tick and what makes them successful so it's actually fascinating i, I love what i do and that transcended through you know I've, I've traveled and i've worked with many different firms you mentioned a few before but the the journey has always led me to the, the high net worth, ultra high net worth segment of the market. Um, and that's where I now find myself. So more recently, as you mentioned, I, I have established my own firm. It's viewpoint private. It's a private entity. That just allows me the, the opportunity to be truly independent. So I can actually work with, with families and, and individuals, organisations in a really transparent manner. So I don't have anything behind me that I have to sell. Uh, it is real, good, solid, honest feedback and, and advice. So that's yeah. kind of why I do what I've done. <laughs> and I, I just want to talk about um, a couple of things that you've mentioned here, which I think quite pivotal. One we'll come back to, which is growth mindset, which is the psychology behind those that are successful and those that make money, but they lose it just as fast. And the idea around what wealth really is. So we'll come back to that. But before we do that, I want to talk to you about what the stigma around financial planners, and obviously there's been many cases in the media 
with large uh, super cases, uh, banks that have managed people's money. They've put so much trust. So we sit there around the kitchen table. Uh, I know I was working with, you know, there's lots of amazing farm and landowners in Australia that are very, very wealthy that have been not given the right advice on managing their cash flow. So going to be a lone ranger, as some would decide, because you're not selling a product, you're actually able to be transparent and agile and give the very best advice on each case. What do you feel that people should ask so they make informed decisions on who to have around their table as financial planners? The first comment I'd say is take ownership. So we could blame the industry and there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of things we could have done better. And I'm not defending the financial services industry at all, but it takes two to tango. And we're seeing that with the banks at the moment. You know, we're getting all these loan holidays and deferrals and, and it's an interesting time for us and the, and the banking industry. You know, where does this lead? And it's raising a whole lot of questions. So I think stepping back to the question, you know, we've really got to take ownership of what we're doing personally and our family. So if you're, you know, if you're not actually doing the work to find the right people that are actually helping you, you're probably not going to find the right fit. So if we're, if we're addressing those questions, you really need to explore yourself first. So you need to find some context. So what are your short, medium and long-term goals? Not only financial, but what are your lifestyle goals? What's important to you? Because uh, the one thing I, I will say from a financial advisor perspective, if let's say you, Nikki, were coming to me for advice, if you don't know yourself, how am I supposed to? Yeah. So you've really got to do the work. So know yourself, know your family, and then know what you need. And that's what this discussion is all about, I guess, is, is knowing what you need then. Yeah. So I can help you with that. Yeah. Um, but certainly the first questions I'm always going to ask is kind of who are you? <laughs> yeah. And then how do people shortlist when they've had those discussions to know, like it's chemistry, right? You know, you've got to use your judgment with people. But how, how do people find out about track records and things? Like, for example, you've got a great history. You can call client referrals. You go, as you say, you do the work and you take ownership to go, not only is this advice going to be intelligent, but do I like this person? Mm-hmm. And can I be honest with him or her? Yep. Yeah, well, the, the common catchphrase in our industry is past performance is no indication of future. So regardless <laughs> of how you look at that, uh, you do have to be careful, but you're right. It's a, it's a trust thing. You've got to gel. And if you look at um, most financial planners, let's say they'll have, um, they might have 50 relationships. You know, the, the, some firms that are working with uh, more retail-oriented clients might have a lot more relationships. So the reality of it is if you're a financial planner and you've got 100, 200 relationships, very difficult to uh, to get across all those um, in its entirety. So the relationship's very important. You may not be the highest value client to that particular uh, financial planner, but if there is that true relationship there and you've got that um, that synergy, it will help you ask questions and get answers and really get the feedback that you need. And, and that's really important. So when you're, when you're identifying a financial planner, we're probably jumping the gun here, but you'll always make sure that there is that synergy and, and that you fit um, the profile of their common clients. That's really important. And then going on to the investment specific sort of stuff, if you're being proposed any sort of investment, you need to really understand what it is. So the who, what, where, why, how. And by answering all those questions, you, you kind of know what you're, you're looking at. And then once you've got the investment on one side and you've got your goals on the other, 
you actually work out whether there is synergy between the two. There's no sense in having one side right and the other not. So that will then paint a pretty clear picture of, of whether it is right for you. Now, if you decide that it is right for you, you then want to work out what the risks are. So it's important always to ask what the risks are with any particular investment. If you know the risks up front, you might not know them all because some risks are completely unforeseen. But if you cover them off and know how those risks might be dealt with throughout the journey, so if they do come up, um, that'll give you a pretty clear indication on whether that's been thought of. If it hasn't, alarm bells, because the reality is things go wrong in business, in life. How are you going to deal with those risks? And then I guess there's, there's the costs associated with the investment. It's very important to know. We call it the MER, management expense ratio. With any investment, you know, there are fees typically associated with it. So you want to know who's being paid, how much they're being paid, and why they're being paid. Let's say you were, uh, you were with a planner, they will get paid a certain element. There might be a fund that's underneath that that will get paid. It could be a salesperson involved that's being paid as well. So you want the clear picture. There's no sense in going investing in an asset class that might have a, a return of, call it 7%, and that's, you know, that, that's typical for this particular asset class, yet you're paying away 2% in overall fees. I mean, that's risk-adjusted. <laughs> There's yeah. something wrong there, perhaps. So if you understand that, you can then make some distinctions. I think I want to also drop a pin here is the great thing is this word curiosity, which is, you know, part of working with great coaches, whether it's financial or anything, is the ability to uncover questions that you might never have thought of before or been asked. So a great planner will actually not skip a step. They'll want to know all those questions and they won't get defensive if you keep asking questions. And I think that's really interesting is that experienced people love the fact when people get hungry for knowledge because they're happy to share. Yeah, absolutely. It shows a real interest. And, um, you know, as I said earlier, most of us get into this game because we want to help people. So you can't help unless you know, you know, and you're getting asked these questions. Yeah. Um, and that and that's a discerning choice thing. If, if your financial planner or your tax advisor or whatever else is, is brushing off your questions or avoiding them or defending things and won't show you what's under the hood, that's alarm bells to me. Absolutely. Every day of the week. <laughs> so... I, yeah. So, okay, great. Let's just get back to as well, uh, this word high net wealth, you know, we've gone from zeros being added and we've got crypto, we've got all these things. Like it's just, no one really knows what to anchor, which is why you must know what your lifestyle and what your financial freedom number is, which is your little catchphrase. Like what is the ultimate freedom number? And I remember, you know, that could have been a million dollars five years ago and perhaps it's 5 million now. So how do you think people can look at what high net wealth really means? Yeah, well, there's many different ways to answer that question. We'll cover a few of them. Mm. Um, money, ultimately, money means different things to different people. So it's all about your expectations. If you look at the framework within which we're operating, so in Australia, all different um, locations around the world are different. So in Australia, we define high net worth or i.e. sophisticated investor as uh, someone that's got more than $2.5 million in, in net assets or they've earned more than two hundred and fifty grand gross in the last couple of years. So that then puts you in a, a separate category. That category as a sophisticated investor, it's probably the terminology is probably incorrect because I know a lot of people that have that access to that sort of money and, and I wouldn't call them sophisticated. So 
there's been a lot of um or high net worth for that for that matter <laughs> there's been a lot of conjecture in the industry about you know how we should be treating people should we be treating people differently in the advice spectrum on the basis that they have a little bit more money than someone else and I'm not sure we won't go into why they made that distinction but it's probably more so around your ability to take action if something went wrong i would think um, because you've got the resources there to to do that but um, outside of that if i think about what high net worth is really I, I think it's your ability to cover off all your needs in its entirety so um, and as i said that'll be different for different people so if your needs are that you want to look after your family, you want to hand down money, you want to you want to have your beach house, you want to have your nice family home completely paid off, you want to be able to cover, you know, pay, have twenty five grand or fifty grand a month coming in in your retirement, and you can afford a holiday every year, and and the kids are kids are set up. That is probably what I coin as as high net worth, and that you know that that. In this day and age, as you quite rightly pointed out, a million bucks, back when I was sitting at that kitchen table with my parents, that was high net worth back then. Not so much anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the uh, things have certainly changed, whether it's inflation and, and just the value of money um, has completely changed and it will continue to. Um, and who knows, you, you suggested crypto and there's other things happening, but ultimately the value of money is changing. And right now, high net worth is probably somewhere in, in that seven to 10 mil plus range. If you live in the country, you could be high net worth with, with a little bit less than that because mm-hmm. you just don't need that sort of quantum of money. Yeah. Ultra high net worth is a, a different category and stratosphere altogether. Yeah. Um, in my opinion, that is where you're, you're moving into that, that space where you've got more money than you need, regardless of what lifestyle you want to live. So, you know, that's probably 50 mil plus, I would think. And then you move into the, the family office style scenario where you can afford to employ people like me to work for you directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's where you're becoming ultra high net worth, in my opinion. And you know me, I always like to drop truth bombs and reality checks. Like I always think it's uh, interesting that we have a lot of language in today's current circumstances that talk about uh, lack and fear and you know market crashes and new ways of investing, but that's those things have always happened since the dawn of time when currency became whatever it was from bartering right through to, to cash, to gold, to silver, to bonds, you know? So the, the challenges that we're facing now are under the same headings that we've also always faced. So it's our agility to have a fresh perspective, to be informed, no matter what the dice are, the headings under them are the same, which is, you know, um, meeting your obligations planning for your future, looking at different currencies on how to leverage the money and make it work for you and smart investment, uh, which means, you know, I did this grid up, which is probably about six quadrants, which are, you know, from low risk to high risk to cash flow to long term. There's so many different things that is about finance and wealth. And I think the first thing is I want to talk to you about debt because I believe that what we've got in society is we've got a huge leverage of borrowed money, but people's cash flow knowledge is very low against that. You know, probably not so much in the sophisticated high net wealth, but I would then once again say that's not entirely true as well. Just because you have turnover doesn't mean you have profit to play with. Mm-hmm. And there's so, smoke and mirrors everywhere, as we know. Smoke and mirrors everywhere. So what would you say to anyone listening right now that whilst they're building 
their their net wealth portfolio and their planning and investigating this. Why is cash flow so crucial? Yeah, well, in right now, cash flow is crucial. Um, it's the thing that keeps you going. So, you know, we can talk about debt as well in, in this context. So a debt can be bad and good um, as well. So, and we, we had this conversation we did. Yeah. Um, so my opinion is that, that it can be both good and bad. You can use debt for good purposes. My personal uh, perspective is if, if you're using debt to drive around in the, in the latest fancy car, it's probably not a great, great idea. Uh, but if you're using debt to accelerate your business for the right reasons or invest in key assets that are going to be structural in nature for your long-term growth and, and, um, and financial freedom, in your words, you know, that, that, that's not a bad thing. And you're looking at interest rates right now where they are, um, not to say they'll always be at that level, but um, debt's pretty cheap at the moment. Yeah, I just want to talk to you about interest rates. So the reason why I would just look at my phone then, because New Zealand, uh, via Westpac Group, uh, I don't know if you've been aware of the wildfire that has come out recently about the trajectory of lowering, uh, lowering home loan rates to 1.5% and that possibly Australia would suit. So we know what's happened in America before when we had extremely low interest rates, but why why do we seem to capitalize on FOMO and, and sell to the fear of missing out where we're going to inflate and possibly some of those people won't be able to afford their properties next year? Can you talk to me a little bit about interest rates and how to make informed debt decisions? Yeah, well, sort of going back to what I was talking about earlier, debt for the right reason. So yeah. you don't want to be the outlier. You don't want to be taking on more than, than anyone else. <laughs> For the wrong reasons, uh, but for any reasons in particular. So, and this is where you, you really do need to sit down with your financial planner and, and get perspective on. You don't want to be taking on too much too much risk because there is risk associated with any with any debt, but there's also risk in doing nothing as well. Um, well, a hundred percent. I mean, yeah. I don't even know if we're allowed to mention it on shows or anything, but you know, the is it buy-ins or whatever it is, where at any stage a government could decide that they will have access to your cash to to save the nation for a very benign use of the terms. But do we actually own the cash in the bank that we have sitting there? If it's just sitting there and it's stagnant and it's not doing anything, that's also just as dangerous. We'll probably need another show to answer that. <laughs> probably. Okay, we'll, we'll do another well, one on all, that. What I would say, you know, in terms of cash in the bank, you know, if, you, if you've got uh, money on term deposit with a bank, there's a certain amount of that that is now guaranteed by the government. But as you say, is the, is the government going to support that forever? Who knows? If you live under a rock, though, you're probably unlikely to do anything. So it's important that you know, there's elements of risk. Take calculated risks. So the things that you do know, known knowns, they're the things that you probably focus on. I know a lot of people that, that have you know, cashed out in the GFC, for example, and have never actually got back in. So they've taken tremendous risk. So meanwhile, CPI inflation has been bubbling away. Markets have recovered um, since then, and they're still sitting in cash at interest rates where they are now. Um, their financial loss is far greater. Loss of opportunity. I heard that's called financial PTSD. You know, you've just yeah. got post-traumatic stress from losing everything, and you get paralysis. So, mm. what would be great about the show is is getting people out of that state of paralysis by confusion. And, yep. and as you say, taking calculated risks. So if anyone's listening to this now and you're talking through, you know, the importance of cash flow and that debt's not all bad if used in the right areas, what would you say 
anyone should do to look under the hood of what they've got in place. We would, you know, you always do a great Q&A. What would a couple of nuggets be from you to go, well, take some action. What would that look like? Yeah, I, um, this, this, there's a few frameworks that, that we work with, um, with ultra high net worth clients. And I actually think it's relevant to everyone. And I think it should be available to everyone. So I, I like to, I'll just point out a few things that are, that are done in that, in that sphere. So when we sit down with a family, we will go through uh, a few different things. So family management and the governance of that family. And it could be everything from goals, their values, the way they communicate with each other. Uh, and then that extends into their, um, their philanthropic endeavours and some of the things they might like to, to get involved in in business. And then on the other side, so that's more around the family mission. Um, then you'll have the, uh, on the wealth management side, the investment policy. Um, so that's a, and self-managed super funds in Australia are required to have a, um, an investment policy in place. But I tell you what, I've seen a lot that are just there because they have to have them. I, I just got an update from my super group that have a statutory update when they change the portfolio percentages and yep. it's like seven pages. And I'm thinking who would actually open and read that and then even understand what those changes mean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's important for you to write your own policy. So SMSFs, self-managed super funds in Australia will, will are mandated to do that. So they have to do it, but I think everyone should have it put it in writing and then you're accountable. So if you've got something in writing and, and look, you can, you can work with your financial planner or look it up online. There's plenty of examples yeah. on, on the sorts of things you can, um, you can put in there. Um, but if you're, if you know yourself, you know, your family, you know, your goals and your values, you can then start to put something into to context on the financial plan side, because then you can, you can develop that policy. And once you've got a policy in place, it then becomes a lot easier to execute on that policy. So you'll start investing in what is true to you and your family uh, and in accordance with that framework. Now, then you've got the review process. You can, so you can actually follow up on that and, and make sure that everything is in alignment with, with what you're doing. And the one thing I'd say in investment markets is no one's got a crystal ball. Um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to sit in rooms um, many times with some of the world's best economists and market strategists and you name it. And it's really interesting when you put them all in the same room and ask the same question. And there is a reason you get different answers at exactly the same time from all of them, because they're just, no one knows. (laughs) So so if you know that, uh, that's the one thing you do do. (laughs) You do know is the fact that no one really knows. So building a framework at least gives you some sort of structure to work by and there are there are a few fundamentals that you can sort of work by there and that's where you talk to your, your financial planner and advisor you know that you can look at historical historical market moves in equities and all the different asset yeah. classes and, and sort of get a rough picture on where things are going and then you can kind of forecast you'll never really know but 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 at least you've got a parameter to yeah. work with I totally agree. And I think what's exciting about this is, you know, we're in the business of energy, right? So we know just like extreme sports or anything, when you, you throw your head somewhere, the rest of your body will follow. So mm-hmm. I always think if people sit there and complain that their money's not working for them, it's probably because they haven't put the work in to mm-hmm. understand their decision-making framework and do this due diligence. So with my clients, I don't let them go to step two until they've finished step one because we're building towers on quicksand. And it's something I refuse to do. No hope projects. 
Um, and which is why I recommend, um, you know, kickstart discussions with you, Ben, around this decision-making framework. You've got your mission, your family management governance, and you've got your vision, which is what your investment policy is. And we will talk about ethical bystanding and investment. Uh, many people have pulled their money out of oil and gas and certain things, but there are essential services that will need a, a trifecta of still being operational until this world becomes fully solar. And even then, what are we going to do with all the batteries? So I believe informed investment and a diversified portfolio without just assuming anything, right? And that's yeah. what you're willing to give your clients is, if, is know your numbers. Yeah. So on that, um, something's changed in the last three or four years in particular. So let's say five or 10 years ago, you really had a, 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 a bent on a certain um, type of asset or you had a view and you wanted to ex- exploit that view in your portfolio. Good luck. There was not enough information to allow you or give you the ability to actually make that determination. And it's something that you know we've been working pretty hard at. But you wouldn't see real change until you know capital flows and capital markets actually the flow of money, weight of money started moving in those areas. So there had to be a framework developed that allowed you the ability to quantify uh, the risks or, or whatever that particular company was doing. So ESG, socially responsible investing, uh-huh. is what we call it. And companies now, more, uh, MSCI is is a good example. They are they've got a team of over seven hundred people around the world that are working with these companies and not only taking the information from the reports, but actually reverse engineering that and asking a lot of questions of those, um, those particular companies about what they're doing, women on boards, you know, whether they're consuming water or power and how they're doing that, are they putting back into the grid? So that gives that, that quantum of information allows us then to make those decisions. I think what's really important here is I just want to loop back to my original point, which is, you know, by driving curiosity and by being hungry and taking ownership for knowing your numbers, we're actually driving transparency in the market. It is a two-way street. And beforehand, you know, like you said, my parents, other people before, someone comes in, they've got a briefcase, they're from the bank and everyone goes, oh, you must know everything. And just because of all the movements lately where the veil has been lifted, accountability has to work both ways. The more questions we ask, the more information we're given, the more transparency, which means we can make better decisions. So I, don't, I think that, that that shift in in capital transparency and climate change, metaphorically and physically, uh, is because consumers need to keep asking questions. And a great advisor is never afraid of those questions. Yeah, precisely. But that's right. I mean, you know, previously we, uh, we'd have the discussion, but you couldn't act on it, whereas now we can. Um, what we have to be careful about now, though, is that we don't overdo it. Um, oh, 100%. I, I totally agree. Yeah. Yep. So there's certain elements that we, we're probably jumping in, and I can tell you what, um, every wealth manager <laughs> that's worth <laughs> sold at the moment is actually, they're almost promoting themselves as socially responsible. And, and if you look under the hood, they're probably not, but they see that as a, an opportunity to market themselves. Yeah. Um, because it is the new frontier. So you do have to be careful in many, many different ways. So ask the questions, know what your advisors, how passionate they are and whether they do actually, in fact, have the tools um, to make those judgments. 
Um, and just looping back as well, uh, Ben, you know, why we always have had good discussions and have a lot of fun with what we're doing, but you know, I have a perception that, that anything is like the rally of life. It's like the Dakar rally. So you've got to suit up, it's all conditions and that's where the fun is. So yeah. it's taking the shock and horror out of crashes and losses and realizing that it's ebbs and flows and that roadmap that you're given once you've gone through that matrix, which I'll design up courtesy of you and put on, on the link is you've got that review and refine. And how on earth can you, you know, be shocked if you're not taking the time to drop the pin in the map every six to nine months or annually at least. But I think at the moment biannually or twice a year uh, and sometimes quarterly, if you're starting something new, is probably good fiscal responsibility um, from both sides, correct? Well, when you've got a new client. You know, that's, that's the bright spot in, in this whole COVID thing in my mind is that the review process you know, traditionally speaking, you know, you probably catch up one-on-one or, or, you know, advisor and client and you try and do that at least biannually. Um, if you could, you, you'd do it quarterly. We're all busy people. It's very difficult. And there was Produ- a bit of... Productive, Ben, productive. Productive, yes. <laughs> I do need to get that right. <laughs> yeah, but this now, there was a bit of a stigma in terms of doing exactly what we're doing now and, and having a review in this in this light. Um, but there's, I think we're all accustomed to it now a little bit more. So there's, there's no reason why I couldn't be over the other side of the world and we're having our review and, and being accountable to each other. And yeah, I think it's, it's really important. And I can see some real positive changes in, in our industry and perceptions. So there's no reason why we can't be accountable and review more often. In saying that, you know, markets can be volatile and it doesn't mean, let's say if one quarter things have haven't quite worked out. It's not necessarily a red flag to change everything. Yeah, Um, exactly. But that comes back to your investment policy and your roadmap, which calculates what a short, medium and long-term where things just have to take their course. So you're not, you're not sitting there trading minute by minute. Some things are, you know, longer term investments, other ones are a short term cash cows or whatever you want to call it. And that's up to you and your financial planner. But the other flip side of regular review and refine is relationships because that those relationships you have around the table that those what I call them knights of the round table you must choose who has a seat of knowledge uh, at your table so it's an important connection like it's how's your life going even for 5 minutes you know what's happening with your family what else has changed it's agility not just resilience because if you don't check in you've got probably a bigger mess to clean up later precisely yep and and Put your trust and faith in the people around you. You've got the right people there at the table. You know, you've got to have some fun with it as well. And, and you're right, there's, there's a lot to be said about the relationships and the, the personal side of what we do. That's why we do what we do, isn't it, Nikki? It's, um, oh, 100%. You know, I, I can remember scoring snooker for my dad's friends when I was like six or seven and they'd come and sit on this big leather sofa at the gentleman's club and then they'd come over afterwards and I, and they'd say, what do you think we should do with this thing? And I'd sit there with my little, and I'd score the snooker. And we'd have these chats. I learned that from my father, that the, the business of relationships is more important than anything else. And those relationships mean you don't just opt out when stuff gets tough. You've got to be there for each other. And financial advisors or coaches are part of your family. You know, yeah. so you, because I know I feel completely responsible for the navigation tools I do with my clients. And, and when we give someone advice, the ripple effect of that is not just that person, but it's their whole ecosystem. And quite often thousands inside companies. 
So do you think that inherent responsibility and connection is not all financial planners, not all coaches have it? Why do you feel that's important for you to really enjoy working with your clients? Yeah, well, for me in particular, you know, going back to, to why I got into the industry, you know, having um, insights into the business side of it, I, I love business, um, all facets of it. So, and, and I know I, I like to do a good job and I know I can't do a great job if I don't have all the resources and the information available to me. So that's quite frustrating actually. And uh, recently yeah, I've had a lot to do with, uh, with lending. I find it fascinating that when you're, when you're going for a loan, you'll, you'll give the bank basically everything. It's just expected that you have to give up everything to get that loan. Whereas you'd be amazed when you're sitting down with a new client, a lot of the time they're reluctant to give you what you need. <laughs> so it's quite challenging sometimes. So I think there is that stigma around financial planners or advisors having too much information or something. I don't know what it is, but what I would put out there is that in order for your financial advisor or your trusted relationships to do what they need to do, they, they really need to know a lot about you and, and uh, your values and your, your, your proposition so they can actually do their job. So that'd be, you know, and, and trust, you've got to earn trust. I think we all understand that, but um, it, it's important that you get there quickly <laughs> if you can. <laughs> and, and let me flip that around a little bit. A lot of people that had it all and lost it all I don't want to tell anyone. There's a whole thing around pride and ego and failure. And I think what I think the the thing that I love working with you with Ben doesn't matter if you're working with a 50 mil plus client or someone that's just entering into their first mil and more is that there's no judgment uh, because when you when you're completely committed to seeing people grow and shine, it doesn't matter where they start. So having a great financial advisor is judgment-free, which means no matter where you sit when you're listening to this podcast, whether you're driving, whether you're watching this on YouTube, I think from myself and definitely Ben's perspective, there is no judgment. We would only be concerned if you didn't step up and go, how can I help? And I think a lot of people don't want to look at their numbers because they're afraid of what they're going to find. There's no greater reward for, for me or any financial advisor or planner than to see the goal short, medium and long-term, particularly those long-term goals, and then work with a, a client to set them all out, help them with their framework and then achieve it and toast, toast a beer, wine, whatever it is yeah. at the end of the day and, and know that you're, you know, you get your small wins along the way, but you, know, the, the, you get there. Great if you can get there sooner, but it's okay if you don't. And so you're right, it, it could be a 50 mil client. Their goal is going to be very different to a one mil client that in reality it's, achieving the goal is the main thing. That's the main objective. Yeah. And no matter where you're starting now, and if, you know, I, I just don't believe these frank off um, transparent discussions, just like in class and then you weren't taught to listen, we weren't taught how to concentrate, we weren't taught how to do our numbers, some were, some weren't, but the guilt, shame and blame has to come out of these conversations. And I urge you to get educated and, and dive into the numbers and start practicing um, self-care around that, no matter what you may have lost or been embarrassed about in previous decisions, the point is from now forward. And when you work with someone like Ben, there is no judgment. So I think both of us would encourage anyone that's listening to not be afraid to just get all the information of where you sit now together, because the longer you leave that, you're missing a great opportunity to really get in the driver's seat of building your net wealth. 
Absolutely correct. Yeah. Why start tomorrow? <laughs> yeah. So a couple of things, Ben, you know, where can people find you? Uh, viewpointprivate.com.au, is that correct? Uh, just dot .com. Dot yep. com. And yep. you work globally with contacts as well. And uh, of course, given the fact of how you work. So yeah, surely. Uh, so particularly yeah, with what we do, there's investments all over the world. It, it's yeah, investing is global particularly with, uh, with some of the larger families, uh, their investments and the opportunities coming in and out of Australia. My focus is, is here, but there's certainly, you, know, you have to be global in this, in this day and age. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, uh, there's, there's no borders, really. Yep. And then the other thing is um, what we'll do is we'll put a couple of those checklist questions on. And I guess one piece of advice, uh, you know, it's really important for people to know that I, I believe curiosity is the cure for all things because it replaces fear and around numbers, nothing is ever certain. So off the back of this podcast, what, what are two immediate things anyone could do to go and check where they're at and do next? For example, what would you recommend? Yeah. So sit down and have a bit of a reflection, look at what you've done and set out your goals. So most people won't have perhaps done that. They might have thought about it, but what a great time to do it. Um, a lot of us are a bit locked down at the moment, particularly down in Victoria. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, it doesn't take long. Just what's, we all, we all have a rough idea what's important to us, but um, jot it down on paper, that accountability, get it down and then um, start to think about a framework around that. Um, there's probably three things. And then uh, evaluate whether your current advisors, if you have any, are doing what they need to be doing, um, whether you're happy with them. And if not, um, start to seek out someone that you can trust and, and um, put people around you that are going to help you get there. And those three things um, will set the foundations for you going forward. Absolutely. And we don't have time to talk about this today, but I would really like to have another chat with you about uh, high net wealth management legacy and the struggles that many families are facing in carrying it forward, uh, paying it down, all those types of things. I think this is a huge topic now where perhaps people have looked back and they think that their children and grandchildren haven't got the fiscal judiciary to manage all the hard work. We've had generational gaps, we've got lots of stigmas around that, but I know a lot of family businesses that are experiencing extreme stress with uh, legacy around funds and what to do with that. So I'd love to have a, a follow-up conversation if, if that would please you. I know it please yeah. our listeners. Yeah, sure. And, and the point there is that money doesn't solve all the issues I see. It <laughs> creates very different ones. And um, so there's lots of different challenges uh, that don't stop. But yeah, it's our role to uh, to make sure that whatever the scenario, that we are able to help them help our clients work through it. So yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to have a chat about that any other day. And I think that's an important thing too. If you're listening to this, when it comes to family management and business legacy, or if you're selling your company and you've gone through the usual channels before, this is a chance to maybe look up a little bit and do some footwork first. We'll put some questions there for you to assist you in that thinking. Um, but to understand your goals, value, and how to communicate, because it doesn't always have to be difficult. That's a perceived issue that can be reasonably solved with the right people and the right structures around the table. So uh, Ben Griffith from Viewpoint Private, and also, of course, uh, with Seneca, thank you so much for your time today and for putting up with all my questions and interruptions. I get so excited when I have geniuses on the show. 
I wouldn't call myself a genius, but <laughs> no, I've, I've certainly enjoyed it. And, you know, I'm very passionate about the space. So if we can help anyone, uh, even, you know, light the fire, uh, get it started, uh, get them thinking about what they're doing, that's the start of something special for them and, and they, they won't regret it. So <laughs> No, and I think we have to, you know, the ability of abundance thinking instead of lack is, is it's not just a buzzword. It's, it's people that have grown their net wealth is because they've put time into focusing on it and making educated, informed decisions. It's not by chance, it's by choice. So uh, Ben, thank you. It's Ben at viewpointprivate.com. Is that correct? That's Email? right. Ben G at Seneca FS. So he's like a personality. Yeah. <laughs> and I also put Ben Griffith's LinkedIn a profile and links to his website. So you can reach out directly. You can leave us comments as well, because we'd love to encourage the conversation to have you fit and healthy with your finance and looking forward rather than wallowing what has what gone wrong in the past. And I love the word agility rather than resilience. So thank you so much, Ben. Um, have a wonderful rest of your day in Victoria. And once again, for being such a humble guest on the Mojo Maker podcast, talking about high net wealth management and what does that look like for each of our listeners. So if you'd like to know more about this, you can hop onto vitalitycoach.com.au. Of course, YouTube, Vitality Coach TV, podcast, the Mojo Maker across all podcast channels. There's a reason I love talking so much. Uh, but most of all, we hope that you can take away at least one or two resident tools from today's uh, episode that will have you uh, firmly in your future to stay healthy, wealthy and wise. So until next time, um, you're in the driver's seat, No Hope Projects team, and we look forward to coming back to you with the information from this episode. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we'd love your review on iTunes or you can jump online to thevitalitycoach.com.au. For more from Nikki, to sign up for the Monday Mojo and the Vitality Coach TV on YouTube.